Good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Justin said at the beginning of the service. Whether you're here in person, and Dennis was saying to me, this is the biggest crowd we've had since we reopened, other than the two outdoor services we had at the end of June and then last Sunday. So that is awesome. It's great to look out and see so many of you. I'm going to feed off your energy. And then welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. May the words of my mouth and the reflections of all of our hearts and minds here today be pleasing to you, Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, would you encourage us today? Would you shed your light on our lives? Would you speak to us through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament today. And we're starting a new series today in Daniel. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open up to Daniel 1. It'll also be on the screen. I encourage you, those of you who are at home, to to go and grab a Bible. That allows you to look ahead and normally to look behind, but... Today we're starting at the outset, so Daniel 1, verses 1 to 8, not 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. This is the word of the Lord. I remember my first day at the University of Toronto. My parents lived in Boston at the time, and I'd just gotten back from a year of teaching English in Thailand, and so I stayed with a friend overnight after flying in from Boston, and his dad drove me downtown the next morning. I remember he dropped me off in front of this imposing building, my new home, one of the residences in the downtown U of T campus, and he said to me, you know, you can be anything you want to be. Remember this day. 
and good luck with your life, kid. <laughs> it was a crazy moment. Everything was new. Everything seemed possible. My son Callum is having that experience right now. I think we have six or seven young people from our Courtright Church community who are away from home and going through that in one way or another this month. Callum's in first year at McMaster. Judith and I drove to Hamilton this past week to see him. I looked in his fridge, as you do as a parent, and I noticed he hadn't eaten much of the food we'd gotten him a couple of weeks ago when we dropped him off. All five bags of jiaozi, our favorite Chinese dumplings, were untouched. And you get concerned about that as a parent. But then he told us that he'd been going to so many events, so many welcome events held by different groups at the university, and all of them had food. I don't know how that's allowed, but apparently in Hamilton it is. So he didn't have to cook that much. Smart kid, I thought. And so Judith and I imagine him at those events and in his classes, even with the pandemic, and we hope more freely as time goes by, he's making choices. He's choosing who to talk to, who to build a relationship with, what group to join, how he's going to spend his time. Hopefully, more studies involved than when I was a first-year student. All of these choices he's making, it's this completely new horizon for him. And so we wonder, and I'm sure he's wondering himself, who will he be at the end of these four years at university? How will he have changed? Today we start a new sermon series in the book of Daniel. It's about a young person starting university in a new city. We're going to take the next two months to look at the experience of God's people living in exile in Babylon. They were facing something altogether new, but not like the excitement you or I might feel as we begin a new chapter in our lives, after we move somewhere or take up a new opportunity. No, the Jewish people were defeated and taken away from their home against their will. They were taken away from a culture that they had shaped that was theirs, that supported them and their faith in God. What is it talk early in our reading about some articles from the temple in Jerusalem being taken away by the Babylonians? It seems like not such an important detail. Well, because the temple represented so much to them. It was where God came down and met with his people. It was where his glory dwelled. It was everything to them, and now it was gone. And they were sent away to a strange place where they were going to encounter a new system of education, religion, and government that was hostile to who they were, to their faith in Yahweh as the one true God of the universe. So here's the question that the book of Daniel raises for us. How can we live faithfully as believers in a world that is hostile, sometimes hostile, increasingly in opposition to Christian belief? We're going to take the next couple of months to reflect on that. I think we have a lot to learn from exile. Today, we're going to start by looking at the opening of this book and consider how God's people were challenged by being, first of all, displaced, right? Whole new location for them. Second of all, conformed. They were forced to get in line with a new culture. And third of all, redefined. So we see here that they're displaced, conformed, and redefined. And we face similar challenges. 
And like he gave his people in exile, God gives us hope also. The central message of Daniel is that God is in control, no matter how things may appear in our lives, and that his kingdom will one day fill the earth. He invites us to trust him in that. So some historical context, first of all. The Babylonian exile happened in stages. The first stage was in 597 BC when 10,000 leaders were taken overland from Israel to what today is Iraq after they'd been defeated in war. Then 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar finished the job and the rest of Judah was carried off into exile. Now the exile was the worst disaster to hit the Jewish people since slavery in Egypt a thousand years before this. It was a defeat for God as well, if you stop and think about it. It hurt his reputation in the world. His brand suffered, if you want to think of it that way. Why would God allow such a situation to emerge? Well, that's a question I think we all ask with reference to our particular circumstances. We haven't had to endure an exile like the people of Israel did at the time of Daniel, but we're familiar with loss too. Every one of you here today, every one of you watching online has gone through a displacement, an upheaval of some kind. Maybe you've been literally displaced. Right now, you're away from home, you're away from your family, whether it's for school or work, or you came to Canada, you had to leave the place of your birth. Maybe you're homesick, you're struggling with loneliness, Or maybe you feel that loss, that upheaval in sickness, a health challenge you're facing, or in disability, or as you walk with someone through those kinds of circumstances, or in the grief of the death of a loved one. I often talk to people who feel a kind of dislocation because of a broken relationship with someone in their life. It could be divorce, it could be the loss of a friend, could be conflict with a family member. Or maybe right now, you're in between things in your life and you're waiting for resolution. You feel like you're in limbo, but that resolution just isn't coming. We've all experienced that with COVID in a way. The pandemic, you could think of as a kind of exile from the easy, carefree lives we used to lead. Whatever your situation may be, it's possible even likely that the dreams you once had, the plans you'd made for the future, have not gone as you hoped they would, or have fallen apart completely. When that happens, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, I hate to say that it's going to, we can become bitter and resentful, and we are tempted to blame others or to blame God. I have two friends who feel this kind of displacement about marriage. For one of them, it was coming to the realization that he wasn't happy in his marriage. After many years, actually after decades of disappointment and conflict, and then periods where there was no real communication, as he had tried to change his wife over the course of their relationship, and he felt like God had let him down, like he'd been lied to about how good marriage was supposed to be. But it was only when he came to the point of stopping with, of no longer assuming that his marriage was all about him 
that it was really about his happiness, that it was supposed to make him happy. That was the point of it. It's only when he started looking for God's true deeper purposes in that relationship, only then did he start to find peace and eventually even joy in that place of adversity. For another friend of mine, it's a different kind of disappointment. She's been single her whole life, always wanted to get married. Some Christian friends told her to wait, that the right person would come along eventually, that God had someone for her, except that person never showed up. Only when she came to see that singleness was not a transitional period on the way to some promised land. Only when she began to accept that it could be a calling, even a gift. And I don't mean to make that sound easy because it has not been easy for her. Only then did she begin to settle in that place, to reach out to others, sharing honestly about the loneliness she was feeling, had felt for years, and being able to enter into community with them, with friends, with people in her church, in a deeper way. Now, in both of those situations, God appeared to be absent. But as my friends looked for him in the waiting, in the lack of resolution, in the exile, if you want to think of it that way, they found that he was with them the whole time. God's people in exile in Babylon could have let their disappointment turn to resentment and rejection of God, but that is not what happened. And we're going to see that in the verses that follow. When a nation is defeated, you might expect that their young people would be in for a rough ride. Not that they would be given amazing opportunities. But Babylon wasn't a one-dimensional evil empire. There have been empires like that before. The Assyrians, they just slaughtered everyone when they defeated you. But the Persians, the Persian Empire of which Babylon was the capital, was the greatest, Babylon was the greatest city in the whole world. It was a center of learning and civilization. It was a place that had the most advanced mathematics, science, and technology up to that point in human history. So maybe this exile wasn't going to be so bad after all. Sure, the Jewish people had been defeated, they were living in captivity, but the young men we meet in verses 3 to 4 in this opening chapter of Daniel were about to get a top-notch education, and they were taken care of. The best food and wine direct from the king's table. This might just prove to be the opportunity of a lifetime. But we have some clues also that everything was not well. Why did the exile happen in stages? Because that was the best way to swallow up a nation. You start with young people from the royal family and the nobility, and you require them to conform to what you want, to your culture, to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. In verse 4, it says that they chose young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Kind of sounds like an episode of The Bachelor, doesn't it? The Bachelor Baghdad. What we see on display here are the values of the Babylonians. Like us, they idolized health, physical beauty, strength, intelligence, knowledge, and achievement. 
They literally worshipped these things as gods. In Babylon, there would have been temples to beauty, to the god of beauty. There would have been a temple to the god of knowledge and wisdom. Daniel and his friends were expected to conform to a system in which you used your strengths in your own self-interest to get ahead and to serve the empire, of course. It was natural selection in Babylon, the survival of the fittest. If you were strong, you could make it. If you were weak, you were in trouble. As Christians today, I think we're tempted to this same kind of idolatry. We don't speak about it as worship in our world, but that's what it is. And all of these things that we read about here are gifts from God, right? Health, physical beauty, intelligence, knowledge, achievement, what these young men embodied. They're good things. But when they become God things, things that take the place, the rightful place of God in our lives, when they become ultimate things to us, we risk losing sight of God and falling back into the chaos of our sin and our selfishness. So here's a question for you to make this more practical. What do you daydream about? Where do your thoughts go if you have those moments? And I think they're fewer and farther between for us. Those moments in the day where you have some space, where your mind can wander. What do you value so much that if you lost it, your life would be ruined? Or you might think of it that way. Those of you who have phones, just get them out for a second, would you? Just hold them in your hand. One of my kids once lost their phone, and it was as if their life was ruined. And they they actually said, my life's on that phone. Some of what you daydream about, is that Chloe running to find her phone? (laughs) That's one of my children really took the sermon to heart. I, I love it when that happens. What we daydream about, I think, is reflected in the apps on our phones. For those of us who know what an app is and have phones, it's not all of us, I realize. The places we go online reflect what our heart is inclined towards. If God has a, had the browser history of your week, what would he make of it? These good things that we risk turning into God things, they give us status, they give us security, they give us pleasure, but ultimately they're worthless compared to God. For some of us to choose one area of struggle, it's about money. Do we daydream about how to make more money, how to save more, about winning the lottery. Maybe you dream about what you're going to buy with the money you have or the money you hope to have. Does the desire for more money control your thoughts and actions in some way? God calls us to put money in its right place. 
When God blesses us with wealth, we're to use it to his glory for the sake of others to be shared. Christ invites us to give before we receive. And we give money, we give our money away as an act of discipleship. And God addresses the idolatry in our hearts by telling us to find our worth in him, not in our possessions, not in how much money we have. So I'd encourage you this week in your daily prayers to ask God to start to show you if you've turned something good in your life into a God thing, into an idol. When I was working in campus ministry, I would occasionally have a parent call me up to talk about their child. One time, a woman called me and begged me to convince her son to apply for law school and med school, both law school and med school. She had mapped out a certain future for her son, and it was pretty clear that it had become an obsession for her. She was desperate for him to achieve this result. She was desperate for him to conform to her wishes, to what she wanted for him, for his good, she'd come to think of it, and she was terrified that he wouldn't. You can imagine that that mother was praying and praying for her son, but mostly for him to do what she wanted. What a distorted prayer life that must have been. She wasn't listening to God. Now, wanting a good education and future success and status for her son are not in themselves bad things, but for her, it had become a God thing, something she was desperate for, something she was putting before God's will for herself and for her child. In Romans 12, Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How are you seeking that will today? What will you use your strengths, your influence, your power for? Every one of us has influence, has power of one kind or another, has been given a gift that God calls us to use for good. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to be a disciple, you're going to have to think this through. This renewing of your mind, this transformation the Apostle Paul refers to, it's not limited to prayer and Bible study, Sunday worship, and being a nice Christian. No, this transformed mind grasps and then challenges the patterns of the world. It illuminates school, every area of study, work, vocation, recreation, sports. It sheds light on health, beauty, knowledge, and achievement. Don't trade that in for a little food and wine from the king's table. Don't lose sight of the deeper truth and beauty of God's perfect will. When I was studying theology at Regent College in Vancouver, I used to go down to Seattle to visit my little brother when he worked for Microsoft. I could not believe how sweet that job was. He had a great salary right out of college, and it wasn't like any office I'd ever seen. It was more of a cruise ship than an office. We went to the cafeteria one day, except it was really a five-star restaurant where you could order anything you wanted, and it appeared, and it was free. They had a state-of-the-art gym, and it was free. 
private movie theater employees could book. It was free. The perks just went on and on and on. Years later, I had a really interesting conversation with Kenneth about that. He told me all of that was calculated. He said it was garbage and deception. They hired 22-year-olds right out of college, from out of state, displaced young people, and they gave them all this cool free stuff. Except it wasn't really free. The trade-off was your life. Everybody worked 70-plus hours a week. They lived in the office. And 20 years later, Kenneth told me you'd wake up rich, but you had nothing. Because you had conformed to the pattern of the world, you had put your trust in something that would not last. Jesus asks us, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Are we in danger of that right now? How do you need to recognize that happening in subtle ways in your life and change course? In verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, we meet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we get a sense of where this three-year degree at the University of Babylon was, was, is going to lead them. As we've seen, they've been displaced by exile. They've been set up to be conformed to the Babylonian culture. And now they're being redefined, identified differently. Israel believed in one God, but Babylon was pluralistic and had many gods. Truth was relative. You could pick and choose, make it up as you went along. And so life in exile posed a threat to the identity of these young believers. Would they forget who they were? Would they turn away from their God? Their Hebrew names all point to the name of God, literally incorporate the name of God in the name Daniel. The E-L at the end of Daniel is for God. Daniel means God is my judge. But Babylon wanted to take the God out of them, to change their identity. And so they were given new names derived from Babylonian gods. Daniel became Belteshazzar, which means Baal, a Babylonian god. Baal protects the king. The same change, the same new identity was given to each one of them. And this is really the culmination of what happened in verse 1, where two kings are named, the Jewish king and the Babylonian king. There's a battle and God's people were defeated. And so was their God. At least that's how everyone would have seen it back then. Except we read something surprising in the next verse. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So it wasn't these two kings duking it out that decided how things would end. It wasn't the money, the, the power, the armies that made all of this happen. No, it was the Lord. They had not been abandoned. God was still with them in exile. He was not defeated. All seemed lost, especially as they took on these new names. But it was not. In verse 8, Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. We'll talk more about that next week. But it's a turning point that leads into the practice of a distinct identity as a believer, as a Christian. What does that look like for us? We're going to talk a lot about that over the next couple of months. But let's be clear from the beginning of this book that Daniel is not the hero of this story. Some of you, if you grew up in church a while back, may remember a kid's song. 
has a line like this, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Well, as catchy as that song was, it really missed the point. Daniel's not alone here. He's with three friends, and we'll talk about the community of his friends next week and how critical that is to him keeping his faith and growing in the face of adversity and challenge. But even more, it's not the daring of Daniel that matters here. It's God's mysterious mercy and his surprising presence. He is not a God for the winners. He's not a God for the powerful. He is a God who always meets us in our adversity and who shows up in ways we never expected and probably didn't want. He is the crucified God, and we see his grace and his truth most clearly in his son Jesus, who was displaced from his rightful place in glory and came close to us. Jesus did not conform to the pattern of this world, but gave up his power and even his life for us. He took on the sin and the darkness of the whole world onto himself. He was wrongly identified, accused of being a criminal and a traitor, and he ultimately went into exile so that through him, through Christ, we can come home to God, our true Father, who gives us a new name, who clothes us in righteousness, who does not expect us to be beautiful, to be strong, to live up to his high standard, but who lays down his life through an act of amazing grace for us. In a few minutes, we're going to sing these words. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. I hope that you'll make this song when we sing it, and even now, your prayer this morning. I hope that in the adversity you're facing in your life, whatever that may be, your own experience of a kind of exile, that you won't be overwhelmed, that you will look to God for the vision to see things the way he sees them. And then I hope that you will come to build your life to trust completely that God is where your help comes from, that he will give you wisdom, that he will show you the path that you are to follow. Thanks be to God who never leaves us, never forsakes us. Amen.